The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for an update on healthcare investing, pharma company earnings, and the latest COVID news. My guest is Josh Nathan Cases, Barron's healthcare reporter, who covers it all, don't you, Josh? <laughs> How are you? Good to talk You're to certainly you. one, of, one of the hardest workers in our newsroom. It's great <laughs> to have you back on Barron's Live. Thanks. Good to be here. So let's start with the look at the status of COVID and the COVID booster rollout, which, ha- which is happening this fall. Tell us what's happening on the COVID front, Josh. So things in, in terms of cases and hospitalizations and all the metrics that we look at, I mean, things are pretty stable. I mean, cases are up like 2% nationwide over the last couple of weeks. Hospitalizations are on the same. ICU bed usage is down about 1%. Deaths are down 10%, which is um, so we're averaging about 340 deaths per day, which is still a startlingly high number, but, you know, I'm I think lower, shocked by that. But lower than it's been in a while. Um, and, and look, I mean, you know, you, there are states where, where things are ticking up. Other states, things are ticking down. Hospitalizations are up in Arizona and Indiana, down in Alaska and Mississippi. But, it, you know, things are, it's pretty flat overall, I mean, on a, on a nationwide basis. That's pretty good. So tell me about the booster rollout. How is that going? How many people have gotten it? What's the reaction been so far? So, you know, I looked at the CDC site yesterday. They updated this pretty regularly. They say that about 23 million people have gotten it in the U.S. That's about 7% of the eligible population, which is now they've expanded it to people aged five and up. Um, although that, that, you know, five to 12 age group has only been eligible for a couple of weeks, I believe. Um, and, it's, not you know, a big, it's not a big chunk of the population by any means. I'm kind of surprised by that. No, no. But I, the, the general point is that uh, 7% of the population has gotten it, and that's that's lower than expected. I mean, you know, there there were, you know, the, the U.S. Got bought, I forget the number, but it's in like 150 million doses of this bivalent booster, and we've only used, you know, 23 million. So um, it's I think it's short of expectations, and, um, you know, that's not, that's not the best. Um, the other development recently, I think, is that, uh, you know, the CDC tracks the variant makeup, you know, what proportion of people getting sick or getting sick with which sub a variant of Omicron at this point. I um, mean, BA5 for a long time, for many, many weeks has been uh, dominant. And that's been, I think, relatively good only in as much as it um, is matched very closely or the, the, the updated boosters were designed, you know, specifically to target that variant. But BA5's dominance is quickly fading. Now it's under 50%. Um, and there's a bunch of other variants that are taking its place. I'm not going to say the names because they don't mean much. <laughs> and, 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 and it's complicated. But I will say that um, uh, there's one called BQ.1.1 that seems to be drawing more concern than others. Um, and that's the one that the WHO and others are watching. There's another one. It's, it's like XB something or other. I'm sorry, I don't have that name in front of me. That is not 
large in the US yet, but is being watched closely in other countries. Um, it's a complicated and confusing variant picture right now. It's not like, um, you know, the pre-Omicron era when we talked about um, variants of concern that you could speak about in, in these uh, Greek letter terms. It's There's more of them. Um, they're all so far being classed as Omicron subvariants. And um, it's it's hard, I think, for most people to get a sense of you know, which ones to watch and which ones may cause a problem in the U.S. over the next few months. You know, it's worth noting that parts of Northern Europe um, and Southern Europe have higher case counts now. Uh, cases are up in places like France, Germany, and Finland, also Greece and Italy. Does uh, anyone you know, have an idea about why? I mean, yeah, there's, there's you know, different theories about different variants that are, um, that, that are spreading in those places. And, and often, you know, what happens in Europe um happens here i mean it's the rest of europe has been a bellwether for the u.s recently so um that that said you know cases are not terrible right now we're obviously heading into the colder months and into the holiday season which historically in terms of this pandemic and in terms of respiratory viruses in general are often times of higher spread um but christmas um, parties thanksgiving dinners and whatnot Sure. Right. They're all contributing factors. So, so far, the government has been paying for COVID vaccines, but that's going to change. What does that mean for Pfizer and Moderna, the big vaccine makers? And what does it mean for the rest of us? Yeah, and this is an important moment. I mean, just I think we should say up front that for for the rest of us, in ter- as as individuals going to the doctor or the pharmacy to get our shot, it won't mean anything. These are, we, we, there are no copays or won't be copays for these recommended vaccines. Yeah. So, this is this is a matter of um, you know insurers and government the government shifting the cost burden onto private insurers and and government insurers as well. Um, uh, you know it is sort of unprecedented that the government has, at least in the U.S., the government has you know bought the vaccine wholesale and no one's had to pay, and that's going to end next year. and And the companies are beginning to transition. You know, I think I think that the the thinking generally is that Pfizer has an advantage uh, over Moderna. You know, Pfizer obviously is a, a big pharma company with a very well-established commercial infrastructure. Moderna has had to build that from scratch. And in fact, you know, has never had any product on the commercial market. Um, now, Pfizer, two weeks ago, an executive on a call with investors about RSV, in fact, mentioned that they're considering a list price for their vaccine in the $110 to $130 range per adult dose. And I think that's much higher than people had expected. And we've been tracking Pfizer's COVID vaccine price for a long time. Um, the government in July of 2020 for the first round of doses paid $19.50 per dose. And then the following year, 2021, they paid $24 per dose. And now these new doses, the bivalent boosters for Pfizer, they're paying $30.50 per dose. Now, per dose, there's a lot of reasons why um, the commercial market vaccines should cost more than the government vaccines. I mean, um, there's differences in how these vaccines are distributed and who's paying for the shipping. There's differences in how they're packaged. Um, but there's also a difference between a government market and a commercial market. And, uh, and this is, um, you know, I think this, this leap from $30 to $130 per dose or up to $130 per dose, I think took a lot of observers by surprise, especially because, you know, there's been so much focus in recent years on pharmaceutical pricing. It's an election season. Um, a lot of analysts pointed to those as reasons why they'd expect it. And, and Pfizer has made a lot of money on this vaccine so far. They certainly have priced it lower than they could have. But, uh, you know, there's tens of billions of dollars 
in revenues here. Um, Did they underprice at the beginning? Sure, on purpose, I think. Because, I mean, it, yeah. they couldn't didn't want to be seen as a price gouging during the pandemic. Now they talk about, um, you know, the value to the system, and 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 also, you know, if you look at other vaccine prices, it's not wildly out of line. You know, flu vaccines uh, in the private market are about twenty to thirty dollars, but Pfizer's uh, pneumococcal vaccine is two hundred and fifty dollars. Um, you know, uh, Glaxo's Shingrix is one hundred and seventy dollars per dose. So this is not insanely out of line with other vaccines. It's just a big jump. And, and I think took some people by surprise. And I think Pfizer um, is betting on people not feeling this in their pocketbook and not really seeing a difference. Um, and also, you know, I think making the case that um, that they are making sort of a value-based decision here in pricing this in terms of the benefits that it carries, which are substantial. You know, I, I asked Pfizer CEO about this on an interview uh, yesterday or two days ago, and he says, you know, it, it's cost effective. He said payers will pay for it, and again, patients won't notice a difference because there's just not going to be a copay. Of course, as you've written and as we've noted in other stories, healthcare inflation has been a big part of the rise in inflation this year. But we'll leave we'll leave that for our economics call. Right. So. Pfizer and Moderna both reported earnings this week. Before we get to the news, it was good for Pfizer, not so good for Moderna. I want to look at another vaccine for another virus. That's RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus. You just mentioned it a moment ago. This is not a new virus, but the possibility of a vaccine has people on Wall Street excited. So why is that? What's behind all this? So I, I think we've spoken about this in the past. You know, RSV is a very common virus. There's never been a vaccine before. And most people, it it has, you know, mild flu, uh, cold symptoms. Um, however, you know, it can be very serious for older adults and for infants. And, and now there are a lot of companies working on vaccines for RSV. And it looks like these vaccines could come onto the market as soon as next year. Now, there's two markets. There's the older adult market and there's the paternal vaccine market where you would give a RSV vaccine to a pregnant woman and then... Um, uh, that would notionally protect their child once they were born. Um, now, the the companies, mo most companies are focused on the older adult market. Pfizer and Glaxo had both um, gone after this maternal vaccine market. Pfizer had some safety issues in their trial. I'm sorry, that's incorrect. Uh, Glaxo had some safety issues okay. in their trial. Pfizer is moving forward. And the way this is shaping up is that Pfizer and Glaxo are going to be first, it looks like, in the older adult market. Um Pfizer will be alone in the maternal vaccine market. Um, you know, Johnson and Johnson, um, uh, Merck, uh, um, maybe not Merck. Sorry, but jo Johnson and Johnson, Moderna. Sorry, I don't know why I wrote Merck there. Johnson and Johnson and Moderna have older adult vaccines that are coming down the, the pipeline, but it's it's Pfizer and Glaxo that are first. And there's been so much news on this in the past few weeks. It feels like every day someone else has a new um, uh, RSV-related announcement. You know, last week, I'm sorry, the latest is that Pfizer had very positive data on the maternal vaccine. They said that the, the data monitoring committee that was monitoring the trial recommended that they stop enrolling subjects because the efficacy was so overwhelming. Wow, that's uh, exciting. That's very good. Yeah, 81% against severe illness um, due to RSV in the first 90 days of life. And they say they're going to submit their FDA approval request this year. Um, after that, yesterday, Glaxo said that they'd asked for FDA approval already for their older adult vaccine. Um, you know, Glaxo and Pfizer had put out competing data sets on the competing trials of their 
um, uh, older adult vaccine. It's, it's hard to say. They use slightly different endpoints, so it's hard to say whether one performed better than the other. I, Pfizer's chief scientific officer, who I also spoke with this week, said that he believes the efficacy is similar, but he thinks Pfizer's tolerability is better. Um, you know, the reaction profile is better. Um, I, Pfizer is very confident they're going to have the lion's share of this market. It's going to be a $10 billion market. And I think the, you know, the competition is going to be very fierce. And the question is, as you get, you know, more of these vaccines become available is whether it's sort of a commoditized market, um, you know, similar to the flu market where most of the products are competing on price or whether one or the other has some advantage in terms of the um, uh, safety or efficacy profile. Again, that's mostly for the older adult vaccine in the, in the maternal vaccine. It looks at this point like it's just going to be Pfizer. So why did it take so long to develop a vaccine for RSV? That's a great question. I'm not quite sure. I, I know that, I mean, I don't, I don't know the history of this. I'm not quite sure why, um, why we're just getting here now. I do uh, suspect, I mean, these, these programs have been um, underway in most cases for since before uh, the pandemic, but, it, but it does seem like the pandemic opened investors eyes, at least to the possibilities and, and, and the promises of, um, uh, you know, vaccines and and the vaccine sector, which has long been you know, really locked down by three or four companies. And, um, you know, uh, that that's really been burst wide open over the last three years. An exciting development, certainly financially and also health wise. So now it's time to talk about Moderna's earnings, which came out, I guess, this morning, last night. Yes. No, it's, it's this morning. Morning. OK. Um, the stock was down as much as 12% in pre-market trading, although the last I looked, it was only down about 1.8%. So what did the company have to say and what accounts for the volatility in the shares? Uh, yeah, well, look, I mean, revenues were $3.4 billion for the quarter, just a little bit below the $3.5 billion estimate. Um, earnings missed by a little bit, too. I think the big questions were about um, revenue guidance for vaccine sales this year they took it down by two billion dollars um and and the the revenue now i'm sorry that the sales for the fourth quarter implied by the revenue guidance are 4.9 billion compared to the consensus estimate of 6.6 billion so they they attributed this cut in their guidance to short-term supply constraints and specifically to the contract manufacturers that are doing the last stage of the vaccine manufacturing process the CEO uh, Stefan Mansell was asked about this on the investor call this morning, and he said, you know, it was a very complicated quarter. Not only did they have to deliver the BA5 vaccine to the U.S., but they have a different BA1 vaccine that went to countries outside the U.S. They had a new um, uh, uh, vial size, essentially. Um, and so there were a lot of challenges they had to work through, and that led to some of the um, vaccine that were expected to be delivered this year to be pushed off until next year. Um, you know, the, the other thing that happens with Moderna is they, 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 they sort of talk about expected sales in turn in the out year. So in 2023, in terms mm -hmm. of advanced purchase agreements um, and the number that they, that, that number is often, I think, confused with guidance. So they'll put out a number and it'll be lower than the guidance for the following year. And people will think that's sort of a, you know, you know, below, below um, guidance that's coming in below expectations. But in fact, it doesn't really mean that. And, and they will make, you know, they say we're, we, we're in negotiations for, for, for the contracts. So often when 
um, Moderna reports earnings. I think there's that sort of misunderstanding. And I wonder if that's part of what happened today um, because the, you know, the, the advanced purchase agreements they announced for next year were below um, guidance. But, but again, you know, they, they could sign more advanced purchase agreements. I think the broader issue here is just questions about, um, you know, what's going to happen as Moderna transitions away from a pandemic era environment into a commercial environment where they're competing directly with Pfizer and, you know, COVID vaccine sales are dropping and they don't have another project product yet. You know, they have a huge amount of uh, tremendous pipeline, um, a lot of phase three and phase two programs. But right now, COVID is their only um, commercial asset, you know, the only product on the market. And they, you know, unlike Pfizer, they have not been using their COVID cash to do M&A to get stuff from, you know, other companies that, you know, could bring revenue now. Um, they've really been spending most of it on their own pipeline um, and their pipeline is still maturing. So, you know, I think there's there's rockiness and uncertainty and the stock is down, you know, something like 40% this year. It had run up a little bit uh, over the past few weeks. Um, and I think the question is whether that run up will be sustained or not. I think still maturing are the operative words here because many people had hoped that that the company's success with a COVID vaccine would be a springboard to other vaccines. And as you note, there are many in the pipeline, but nothing has actually been approved yet. Right. Nothing but, you know, they, there are there's, there's mRNA-based flu vaccine, mRNA-based RSV vaccine. I mean, there are combination vaccines that mix these. I mean, there's a lot going on. Um, they We're just, uh, you know, they're, they're all still in process. Right. Okay. Definitely a story you'll be covering for a long time, I think. Yeah. So let's move on to Pfizer, which also reported this week. Things look pretty good. I want to know what's driving Pfizer's growth. Also, I want to tell listeners we'll take questions at the end of the call. So please type them in now if you're thinking of anything. So what is driving Pfizer's growth, Josh? So look, I mean, you know, Pfizer is a similar story to Moderna in certain ways. Um, although, you know, their their COVID vaccine sales guidance, they actually increased for the year. And that was a surprise. They've been expecting $32 billion um uh dollars worth of vaccine sales this year they've increased that to 34 billion i think they've been concerned about um you know weaker demand and as we saw a moment ago you know moderna decreased their guidance for this year um so that was i think seen as a good sign i think that the real question is about the base business so without covid vaccines or antivirals sales for the quarter were 10.7 billion just below the 10.8 billion consensus and representing about 2% operational growth compared to the same quarter last year. You know, Pfizer has talked about a uh, 6% compound annual growth rate, um, uh, revenue growth goal through, I believe it's 2025. And, and I sort of, you know, I asked about this sort of, and that only refers to the base business. That does not refer to, they leave the COVID stuff out of that uh, calculation. I asked the CEO about this in, in this call I referenced before. And he said, you know, they're, they're, they're still certainly on track for that 6% goal. He says, you know, some quarters are a little up, some quarters are a little down, but he calls the base business a growth story. And I think the question for Pfizer really is, you know, how are they going to make up the something like $17 billion in revenue that they expect to lose by the end of the decade over um, uh, from, from their base business over patent expirations? And they have talked extensively about how they're going to do it. They have a very aggressive M&A 
goals. Uh, they say they're about a third of the way through the M&A they're going to do to fill that hole. Um, and I think it's really an execution question. So speaking of M&A, it's been a slow year for mergers and acquisitions across the healthcare market. So that's all the more reason to pay attention to this week's news that Johnson & Johnson is going to buy Abiomed. It's a maker of cardiac devices. And J&J is paying a huge premium to the stock's pre-deal price. So what's the deal, as they say? <laughs> well, look, so the, this is a $16.6 billion deal. Now, J&J is paying $380 per share up front. That doesn't include... Um, uh, milestone payments we can talk about in a minute. The stock has been trading at $252 per share, which is a pretty substantial premium. However, it's important to say that the $380 um, acquisition price is right where the company, Abiomed, uh, I think they, they could pronounce it uh, Abiomed, was trading at this time last year. So, um, you know, it's a quite substantial premium to where it's now, but um, it, it, this is the level where it was trading just about a year so ago. What does J and J see that the market doesn't? Well, what the market didn't. What, sorry, two two things. One is that we should we should also say they're 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 paying up a little bit because they're issuing what's called a CVR to each um, um, shareholder of, of of the company they're acquiring. That'll pay about thirty. They will pay thirty five dollars if various milestones are met. So they're actually paying a bit more than that potentially if these milestones are met. I mean, look, I think that you know J and J is um, about to spin off its consumer health division and it will be a med tech slash biopharma company and it's looking to accelerate growth in both of those areas and they've talked about how you know the way that they want to grow faster in med tech is to move into high growth you know subsectors of of med tech and they talk about cardiovascular as being uh, super high growth and so this company makes these very tiny heart pumps that are used in certain procedures. Um, Johnson Johnson doesn't do a ton in this specific part of the cardiology space. And um, I think they, they see it as a way to get in there and, and really, you know, grow that, that med tech business. It's going to be, you know, even more important to the full J and J picture once consumer health is gone sometime next year. Interesting. We should note that Abby Omen, is that how you said it's pronounced? Now, now I'm now I'm now I'm uncertain. <laughs> All right, it was a pick of one of our healthcare roundtable members in September, so that's a pretty good pick there, pretty good return. Yeah, so definitely a good one. All right, let's go to a couple of questions. Um, we had a question about the Biogen Eastside investigational drug for Alzheimer's, Lecanemab, and what's the what's the um, outlook for the drug? How's it proceeding? So so this is this is the um, the follow up to aducanumab or Agihelm, the biogen Alzheimer's drug that was approved last year that returned very good data um, or data that appeared to be surprisingly good a couple of weeks ago. I guess it's a month or so ago at this point. Um, the the big the big thing we're waiting on now is the full report on that study, and that comes later this month. And at that point. Um, you know, I think investors will have a clear sense of exactly how how well this this drug did. I mean, in the meantime, it's been um, pretty positive for for Biogen shares, and I think changed changed the complexion of of where that company could be heading. Um, you know, th there there are other similar drugs that are providing. We will we'll have new data in the near term. Um, Roche has a drug called Gentrenumab, and Lilly has a drug called uh, Denanumab. Um, all antibody therapies that target the same 
um, or sort of similar proteins. And, uh, you know, I think many people had expected very little from these drugs because of a long history of failures, but the Lilly results were surprised. I'm sorry, the lucanumab results were surprisingly good. So, um, you know, we'll see, we'll see over the next few weeks, you know, we'll get a clear picture of how that really looked. And then over the next few months, we'll, we'll hear from these other companies. I'm glad we got that question. Joseph wants to know if it's time to get back to face masks, hand washing, and social distancing. I'll simply add that I wear a face mask in public, particularly <laughs> on trains and the subway. But has there been much talk about um, stepped up measures against COVID? I'm, that doesn't seem like where the conversation is right now. I, I'm, okay. I don't know. That's not a public health judgment. That's just, <laughs> just right, right, right. people talk. Right, right. No, that's just based on your based on your research. So going back to pharma companies, Merck also reported this past week, and the numbers there seems to me look pretty good. Tell us what's going on at Merck. Yeah, this was last week. They yeah. beat estimates with quarterly sales of fifteen billion and non-gap earnings of a dollar eighty-five per share. You know, I think it's when, when I was looking over their earnings, I think a standout result was Gardasil. This is their HPV vaccine up 15% from the same quarter last year. Some of that has to do with the timing of a purchase the CDC made, but Merck um, sees this as a really big growth opportunity, and they're actually adding capacity to make more of this vaccine. They say that supply has actually been constrained, and they'll have an additional manufacturing facility up, um, I think they said, next year. You know, the other interesting thing to watch with, with Merck is their COVID-19 antiviral, Legevrio, used to be called, well, it's called Molnupiravir, but the the trade name is like Evrio. Um, the sales were 430 million for the quarter. You can compare that to Paxlovid, the Pfizer version of this, which had sales of just looking it up. Well, I don't have it, but it's in the billions. Um, you know, and, and that's because Merck did not get, or, or although Merck's drug is approved in the US, uh, Pfizer's drug is preferentially approved, and Merck's drug is really only approved when options like the Pfizer drug are not available. But they say they I've spoke with their CFO, Carolyn Litchfield, and she said they've seen strong utilization outside the U.S. They're seeing reorders from some countries and they see growth opportunity based on new data they're getting that they say is good. And they presented the data as well. So we had a question from Cynthia asking, is are there any updates on rebound of COVID after taking Paxlovid or Monopuravir? Have there been any studies on this lately? Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I do know that, um, I mean, we certainly keep hearing reports. I believe the CDC director reported a, a rebound uh, in a press release earlier this week, but I, I don't, I don't know any, I have nothing to add on studies. Okay. So Gabriel wants to know whether you have any update on Nash related companies. This is fatty liver disease uh, companies that are targeting that the sector was very hot about a year ago. Interest seems to have faded. Any insights there? I think it was hot like three years ago and it's faded. Yes. I mean, there's been a uh, failure after failure. Uh, I've, uh, I, you know, I, I did a feature on this pre COVID in 2019 um, before they had all blown up arguing that, that it was overheated. Um, and uh, you know, I think there's been, I'm, I'm not aware of any success since then. So it hasn't reheated in other words. No, no. I mean, I think, you know, people <laughs> can go back and read that, that feature about the problems with the, with with those efforts to come up with Nash treatments. And Hal has asked whether Moderna's stock could be poised for a spike given its pipeline prospects. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the question, right? I mean, what happens with these phase three studies and what gets FDA approval and how does it all fare, uh, you know, in terms of um, coming to the market? I, I think that that's certainly a question. I right. The move from prospect to product is the is the issue. Sure. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, presumably if if it moves from if things move from prospect to product, there will be a positive impact on the stock, but too soon to know at this point. I wanted to wrap up, Josh, with a look at how healthcare stocks have been doing this year. And we'll start with pharma. You, you've you noted that the SP 500 pharma index is up 3.1% year to date. That is far and away beating the S&P 500 and almost every other healthcare, every other healthcare index. So why the strength in pharma, which has been a good place to hide out in this year's market? Well, I think that's exactly it. I mean, it's been a good place to hide out. Um, and, you know, there's not a ton of companies uh, here, but but some of them like, you know, I think, you know, the standouts really are Eli Lilly, where there's just been a ton of investor enthusiasm around products like their obesity treatment um, and, you know, uh, denanumab, their potential Alzheimer's treatment that's made that stock incredibly strong. And I think helped, uh, you know, lift, I mean, Lilly shares are up 30% this year, uh, which is quite remarkable. You know, Johnson & Johnson is, is flat this year. Um, Pfizer is down, just looking now, 20% um, in line with uh, the broader S&P 500, more or less. Um, but I think, you know, there have been just some pretty strong performers and, and some, as you say, defensive plays, um, especially with big dividends. Say that again? With big dividends. Big well, dividends. right, exactly, for sure. So that makes them a good place to hide. So the IHI, which is the medical device ETF, is down about 23% year to date. What's happened there? I thought the idea was that that elective medical procedures would resume as COVID began to ebb. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Well, look, I mean, there, there continue to be problems with, with staffing, um, nursing shortages, uh, you know, some executives uh adjacent to this area suggests that that problem is easing a little bit but that's not been the broad story also you know i think the ctf includes uh smaller companies that are uh subject to the same dynamics as biotechs uh, and that includes you know low and low I mean, uh, low rates of m a and, and and those sorts of issues okay and then james notes in conclusion that there's a lot more to healthcare beyond big pharma including the managed care industry. And I think we'll devote a future call to managed care stocks. He mentions United, Humana, CVS, and Cigna. So I thought we'd wrap up with a look at CVS, which settled some opioid litigation this week, and I believe also has um, come out with its latest earnings. Yeah, you know, the, the uh, opioids have been a big concern for CVS since the summer when a federal judge ordered them and Walmart and Walgreens to pay $650 million to just two Ohio counties. Um, you know, I think that raised concerns about a um, very large eventual uh, check they would need to cut. But um, they announced on Wednesday they have settled their opioid litigation for $5 billion, which I think will clarify that anxiety, put a number to um, something that's been hanging over the company's head for a decade. Um, they also announced earnings, as you say, uh, they beat top and they beat earnings and, um, uh, revenue estimates for, for the quarter. I think their, their question right now is how they fill this earnings hole, uh, or, or 
you know, they, they'd set out earning guidance for 2024 that it assumed um, certain uh, payments from the federal government based on ratings of their Medicare Advantage plans. Those ratings have been cut. So now there is a lot of interesting conversation on the call about what they're going um, you know, to do know, to fill that, that hole, to fill that gap. All right. Something to keep an eye on as well. So I think we'll wrap it up there. Thanks, Josh. I always learn a lot when I speak with you, and I hope our listeners did too. Thank you. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in today. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, Claire McAndrew, the founder of Arts Economics, will discuss her mid-year snapshot of the global art market for Art Basel and UBS with Penta senior writer Abby Schultz. They'll be speaking ahead of a landmark series of New York auctions, including the sale of Paul Allen's $1 billion art collection. Sounds like a good call. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.